Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, my guest today is Tan Anthony Tonato. He's a senior research fellow uh, at Duke NUS Medical School. Uh, he's interested in hepatitis B virus, HBV, uh, the immunology of it. And uh, there's some links to uh, you know COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 and how to uh, possibly use the body's own immune cells to target viruses or virus-infected cells. Tan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Well, if you would, tell me in your own words, what's your research about? So um, my research has been focused primarily on hepatitis B and uh, to understand the immune pathology, which is the how the immune system causes the disease and also how the immune system is involved in curing or clearing the disease itself. So it started from there. I've been working on it for the past 10 to 15 years. And from those work, we started to enter into the field of adoptive T-cell therapy. And since hepatitis B causes uh, not only a infection, but also it can proceed to uh, liver cancer. We started to translate our findings into an adoptive T-cell therapy for liver cancer. So in a nutshell, that's uh, what we do on the HPV front. And then when the COVID-19 pandemic start, since our expertise has been primarily on the analysis of virus-specific T-cells, we also started some work on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, mainly on understanding the T-cell response against the virus and uh, whether there are differences between uh, patients who are severe, not severe, uh, and the other nuances of the new disease. Yeah, within the population of people affected by you know, SARS-CoV-2, are you looking at uh, patients that only have severe or very severe symptoms, or are you looking at a whole spectrum? Well, I think the since I'm based in Singapore, so the patient population is definitely uh, the patients that are found in Singapore. And as you already know in the news, there are not that many um, patients with severe disease in Singapore. Most of them have a mild or asymptomatic cases. So we're kind of limited in that, but we're trying to understand uh, whether there are differences between them. At the moment, I think there are some publications about um, the immune, the T-cell response in those patients that are severe and those patients that um, they have mild symptoms. But it's still, I would say, it's still pretty early to understand uh, much about what is going on. And there definitely needs to be more in-depth research to be done. Well, what differences are you seeing in the patients you're looking at? 
Well, we, uh, as you may know, we do have, uh, at least in Singapore, a lot of the cases are attributed to this uh, population of uh, foreign workers in Singapore, where uh, there seems to be a, a rampant um, infection due to their uh, living spaces. So most of these people are asymptomatic. And one of the things that we're trying to see is uh, what the T-cell responses are um, in, in these patients, which is one of the ongoing work that we are doing. Another one that we are in the midst of doing is basically to understand the T-cell responses uh, during the acute phase of the disease and how it changes longitudinally uh, to uh, when these patients have resolved the infection. So you track the patient and you test the T-cell responses uh, from the point where they are uh, considered infected or RT-PCR positive and how the T-cell response evolve through time. So is, is Singapore considering people that are asymptomatic patients? They're still calling them patients, not just no. people? No. When I say the acute patients, I refer to those that have a positive infection and they have a disease. It could be mild, but they're de definitely positive. For the uh, subjects that are, uh, they are asymptomatic, they are definitely not patients. They are just individuals who have been uh, potentially exposed or at high risk of exposure in these uh, uh, dormitories that they're living in. So, so what, what population, how would you characterize the people that you're actually looking at their T-cell responses and some asymptomatic people and some that are, have mild disease? Like, who are you able to look at? Well, again, like I said, in Singapore, most of the individuals that have uh, been confirmed to be infected usually have a very mild disease. Only a handful have a severe disease. And this particular cohort of uh, asymptomatic people are more unique in the sense that um, there's not most of the cases in Singapore stems from this group of people who are living in this, these foreign workers who are living in the dormitories. So uh, most of the samples you'll get are from this group of people. Okay, so when you say they have mild disease, like, like how mild? What, what is observed and then what's their... T cell response. So they're having a mild T cell response or none at all? Like, like what are you seeing? So when I say mild disease, typically they do not require additional um, oxygenation. They do not require artificial oxygenation. Um, they typically have a fever, um, the, the usual respiratory symptoms that you associate with COVID-19. Um, in this, we do not seem to see at the moment. Uh, we definitely need to uh, better look at the data because it's currently ongoing work. But at the moment, we do not see a huge difference in the people with uh, mild and severe disease. But then again, it's also because we have more samples from uh, patients or from individuals that have mild disease rather than those with severe disease. So it's kind of hard to exactly see what is the comparison between these two at the current stage. Well, what, what happens in a typical T-cell response to any given disease? A What's an example of what, what T-cells would do? Yeah. Sorry, I didn't catch the last one. What? Yeah, what's an example of what, like, what, what, you know, someone has a uh, condition, what will the T-cells do? What are the steps that they go through and what do they do in response? Okay. 
Okay, so um, for T cells, there are essentially two groups of T cells. T cells that recognize an infected cell and kills it. These are what you call cytotoxic T cells. And there are T cells that upon activation will provide help to B cells, which then produces the antibody. So this is the main, um, I would say, the main function of T cells in general in a human body. And for T cells, because they are part of the adaptive immunity arm, so as the name suggests, what happens is that it adapts to infections. And what I mean by that is when you're exposed to an infection for the first time, you have an expansion of the quantity of these T cells, both cytotoxic uh, and the T cells that provide help, what they call helper T cells. And you have an expansion. After the expansion and the, let's call it the, the brunt of the infection itself, the quantity of T cells would start to wane and they'll start to contract. But it, is, it doesn't mean that the T cells disappear. They just become what you call memory T cells, and there will be less of those memory T cells in the body. And why I say it's adaptive is because upon exposure to the infection for the second time, or upon exposure to an infection that is very similar to the primary infection itself, then these memory T cells will proliferate to large quantities, both cytotoxic and helper T cells, and you will mount what you call a memory response, which is usually faster and higher in magnitude. So this is how, in general, T cells will behave to any uh, pathogen. So the, the T cells will ramp up faster? Will they attack differently? I mean, uh, what, what do you mean that there's a, uh, there's a memory response? What constitutes memory? Like what happens to, to, you know, to showcase a different type of response? Okay, so perhaps I can bring an analogy to, a, for example, a vaccination that requires multiple doses. Why you require multiple doses? Because after the first dose, you have an increase in antibodies, but that increase in antibodies is not a lot. Then what you do is you give the second dose, and then you see a big jump of the antibodies. So in a way, these T cells behave similarly like this, where upon the first infection or the first exposure to a, let's in this case call it a virus, the T cells will mount a response. It could be sufficient to clear that uh, infection itself. They turn to memory, so they start to reduce in quantities. And when they get exposed to the same virus or a virus that is very similar to the first one, you will mount a second response that is much faster and it is much stronger. So you, in magnitude, the number of T cells will expand more than the first exposure. And in terms of how fast they expand, maybe the first exposure it takes five to 10 days, but the second exposure could be lower than that. Okay, so they ramp up their numbers faster. And then when you say the response is stronger, is it just because there's more T cells proliferating or are they doing something different mechanically, chemically, that uh, you know stamps out the infection faster or differently? In general, uh, you can say that they do not change the, 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 the type of function that they provide. But of course, it is also dependent on 
uh, the type of virus that is infecting uh, the disease itself. So that that I'm just giving a very general uh, concept of the adaptive T cell immunity, where it starts with an initial response followed by a memory response that comes faster and stronger. Okay, so are you looking to uh, alter T cells in some way? You know, maybe make them into CAR T cells or you know, are you just trying to see their behavior in response to, for instance, SARS-CoV-2 and figure out, you know, like, what are you hoping to figure out by studying people's T-cell responses? So perhaps I will answer your second part of the question first, where what do we hope to understand by studying people with SARS-CoV-2? So first, I think what we need to understand is how the T-cell response evolves from the point of infection to the point of clearance and to the point of uh, memory. We have recently published some of our findings uh, in Nature, just uh, one, just two, two months, one, one to two months ago. And what we found was that, yes, in a very similar uh, coronavirus infection, the first SARS-CoV-1 virus infection occurring 17 years ago, we, up to now, we were still able to find SARS-CoV-1 specific T cells in people who were infected with SARS-CoV-1 17 years ago. So this is a demonstration that a memory T cell response in SARS-CoV-1 can last for long periods of time. In SARS-CoV-2 individuals, we were able to find uh, T cell responses specific for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, this is corroborated by uh, many groups across the world who found similar things. But what is also interesting is in people who have not been exposed to SARS-CoV-1 or SARS-CoV-2, we were also able to find SARS-CoV-2 specific T cells, which in a way suggests that a proportion of unexposed individuals do have pre-existing uh, immune response against the corona SARS-CoV-2. So clearly, uh, by studying the T-cell response in people who are infected or people who are not infected, you can better understand whether uh, there is pre-existing immunity or a pre-existing T-cell response whether that could be protective or not protective is, I think, the, the main question that needs to be addressed. And um, to your first question on whether we are trying to modify T cells. Well, this is really dependent on whether T cells are protective in this particular uh, disease. So at the moment, it does seem that T cell immunity is important and it could provide a certain certain degree of uh, protection but clearly i think at this point nobody has uh, concretely demonstrated that uh, if you do have certain t-cells in the body against SARS-CoV-2 you will not be infected or if you get infected there will be a uh, a milder disease. I don't think there is uh, a very clear data on this front. So whether or not uh, modifying T cells and making them specific to SARS-CoV-2 and reintroducing it back into patients, similar to what you see for 
uh, CAR T cells against B cell leukemia, whether that could be a uh, rational approach is still uh, uncertain at this moment. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So when, when you say you want to study T cell response in somebody, how do you do it? You draw blood samples at various times and you look for number of T cells and morphology of them? Like, how do you study this? Okay, so we typically do a blood draw from uh, individuals that have been infected or unexposed. And what we first do is a FICOL separation, which is a density-based uh, a great uh, density-based centrifugation step where you isolate white blood cells from the whole peripheral blood. And once you get this, what we call peripheral blood mononuclear cells, we will then add a stimulant to this PBMCs. And the stimulants are essentially peptide fragments that are derived from the antigen of interest. So in this case, uh, as an example, let's say the SARS-CoV-2 um, nuclear protein. So we get the nuclear protein of SARS-CoV-2, and then we uh, design peptide fragments that encompass the whole nuclear protein, and we add these peptide fragments to the peripheral blood mononuclear cells. So once we add it in, what happens is that the SARS-CoV-2 specific T cells will react to the peptides. They will start to be activated and they will start to produce a variety of uh, molecules called cytokines. Cytokines like interferon gamma, uh, TNF alpha, so on and so forth. And what we do is we detect the presence of cells that produce interferon gamma after addition of the stimulant. So unlike what you described, do, do we just measure the T cells? No, we do not just measure the T cells because if we just measure T cells, we are just quantifying the number of general T cells. What we are doing is we are quantifying the number of T cells that are specific to SARS-CoV-2. So um, T cells, they're looking, the recognition occurs maybe on the, uh, the nuclear envelope of at least for SARS-CoV-2 or is it, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the spike protein, et cetera, but the, the part of SARS-CoV-2 that is recognizable by T-cells is what, the capsid itself, the different peptides that make up the capsid? Uh, no. So I, I, perhaps I was just, I, I just took one of the SARS-CoV-2 antigen as an example. Uh, but I think this is where there is a clear distinction between what antibodies recognize and what T-cells recognize. So uh, I'll go for the antibodies first because I think that's what uh, people understand. The antibodies uh, recognize a whole protein that could be exposed on the surface of the virus, like what you say, the spike protein, and it binds to it, prevents uh, entry and infection and so on and so forth. For T-cells, T-cells do not recognize the virus directly, they do not prevent the infection. What T-cells does is they recognize the antigens or the viral antigens on infected cells. So what needs to happen is a target, a cell needs to be infected by the virus. A myriad of viral proteins will be produced inside the cell. These viral proteins will be chopped up into small pieces and it gets 
presented on the surface of the target cells on specialized molecules as a complex. So the T cells then recognize this complex and then kills the target cells or uh, provides other effective functions. So in essence, while antibodies can block an infection, T cells are required to clear the infection since they destroy the cells that are infected. But this also means that since you need an infection to occur, a T cell potentially can recognize all the proteins of a virus since the virus has to infect a target and all the proteins will be generated in the target cell. So then a T cell can recognize more uh, targets in a way. I think you said that the T cell recognizes those specific molecules that are expressed on the outer cell membrane of infected, not necessarily mm -hmm. all the particles that make up the virion. Sorry? I thought you said that um, T cells recognize the molecules that are expressed on the outer membrane of a cell that's infected, but recognizing all the molecules that comprise the virion, you know, in and out throughout may be different than that. So that's because when a virus infects the cells, it produces all the proteins necessary to, to produce the virus. All these proteins, when it's inside the cell, have the possibility of it being processed and chopped up and presented on the cell surface. And that is why the T cells is able to recognize not directly the virus, but the viral proteins, almost all viral proteins uh, that is being, that, that constitutes the virus itself. Well, is there any preferential expression of certain viral proteins more than others? And why would an infected cell display different pieces of the virus um, on its membrane? Well, is there a preference? So this is a particularly difficult question, I would say, because it's more complicated to explain. But in general, I think that quantity is one of the reasons. So if a virus uh, is made up of 10 molecules of envelope and one molecule of nucleoprotein or one molecule of polymerase, for example, then it is likely that a T cell will more frequently recognize the envelope uh, since there's just more envelope proteins being produced, more envelope proteins being processed and presented on the, cell, on the surface of the target itself. So quantity is definitely um, one of the factors. However, why I say it's complicated, it's also because there are uh, processings of these antigens and the antigens could potentially be processed differently different parts of the antigens could be more efficiently processed and therefore uh, more of the smaller fragments in that region could be presented on the surface of the target. So there could be a, a, uh, a preferential presentation of different parts of uh, viruses. And it's also uh, dependent on the uh, you know, to put it simply, the, the kinetics of the infection. So we have observed in, for example, in hepatitis B infection, where upon infection of a target, certain fragments are presented on the cell surface, on the target cell surface first, before other targets are presented. So there's a, a, a temporal difference as well. 
why would anything be expressed on the cell surface at all? What's driving that? Well, any nucleated cell would be able to produce, okay, any nucleated cell will produce proteins, and any proteins that are being, present, uh, being produced in a cell will naturally be processed and they will be chopped up. So it is part of a degradation process in the cell, and it could chop it up to present on the cell surface also as the body's way of uh, protecting against autoimmune reaction. So it's a natural uh, uh, process in the body that is done in this way. It, it's part of your adaptive immune system in uh, protecting against viral infections or what you call a, any endogenous pathogens. Well, I can see that for recognition of self, cells would want to express, you know, certain proteins and stuff on their membranes. But mm -hmm. I guess when a virus infects, I have thought part of hiding from the immune system is that the virus deliberately modulates what is expressed on the cell membrane because it's taken over the cell machinery. So I would think it would have some ability to modulate again what's expressed and not just everything gets expressed because it's, you know, it's inside the cell. I mean, why not hide it inside an extracellular vesicle or an exosome that comes out of the cell? Why, why display it on the membrane? Well, it also depends because in some viruses, they need... Okay, I'm not talking about the proteins that are on the cell membrane as a whole because, yes, there are proteins that can be produced by viruses that are hidden and they are not expressed as a whole on the, the cell surface. But as you produce the proteins itself, there is also a hypothesis where the ribosomal translation or the production of the proteins is uh, erroneous, and therefore uh, the translation process is aborted. And when that is aborted, you would have a, let's say, a shortened piece of uh, protein or defective particle that could be chopped up and presented as well. So when you say that, yes, why not hide it? Well, there are viruses that could downregulate the HLA molecules on the surface of the cell. So at that point, what happens is that the proteins produced by the viruses could be chopped up, it could be processed, but presentation could not occur simply because there's a lower quantity of the, the HLA molecules on the cell surface. So when that happens, in a way, the virus is evading itself, but a virus will not be able to produce a, if they require the protein for the production of the viral particles itself, then it doesn't make sense that a virus is producing the protein and then hiding it in in one particular segment or one particular compartment of the cell because they need to have the protein, they need to assemble it in the cytoplasm, they need to uh, come out from the target cell itself. And I guess, so, all right, so the virus gets in there, it doesn't, it's a messy operator, I guess is what you're saying, there's errors. Um, also too, there's the, I guess, as the, the virions are packaged and things are made, um, like you said, there's mistakes, but also, I guess, what's presented on the cell surface. Do you think any of that is, well, I guess there is, is deliberate orchestration by the virus. Of, you know, like you said, down-regulating some of the HLA. Um, but also, I guess, some of the proteins can be changed so that they're different, a different structure, essentially maybe a different protein that's not part of the original virus. 
but that is a result of the virus. Now, do, do you see that they're expressing novel, novel things, novel proteins, and no, novel other you know, molecules in the cell surface that only so appear what, when a virus affects? So what you are saying is whether a, wait, when you're saying novel, you're saying novel proteins of the host, or you're saying novel proteins of the virus? Both, yeah, both. Well, Novel proteins of the virus, well, that, that means that a, a change to the virus has to occur. So the virus would have to mutate. Uh, there must be some sort of selection in order for the virus to be there. Novel proteins of the host, well, there are, as far as I know, not that I know of where a viral infection occurs and a host protein will suddenly change uh, because it's encoded into the DNA and so on. But there are instances in uh, tumors where what you call neoantigens are created and neoantigens are essentially your own host proteins that has acquired a certain mutation that makes it different enough from its original self protein such that it could potentially induce an immune response. So that could occur, but that is not exactly similar. It's not like you have an infection or so on and so forth. The new antigens are derived from an evolutionary selection of uh, an evolution, evolutionary selection process, to put it simply. I got you. Okay. <clears throat> I know we, we went down a little bit. Well, I took you down a rabbit hole, but I appreciate that. I just wanted to understand this a bit more. So, mm -hmm. so when T cells have a faster response to infected cells, what do you think is allowing that, that faster response? What's the memory look like? What is it, what's the memory of? It's the particular presentation of certain, you know, certain proteins that it quote unquote remembers. So when it sees them, it doesn't need time to mount a defense. And it says, all right, just make more, make more T cells. Well, why, I, I suppose your question is, is why a secondary infection or a memory response would be faster? Well, it's, it's the biology of the memory T-cells. So these T-cells have uh, a different profile. They have a different metabolic characteristics and they are able to proliferate way faster than, than cells that are uh, non-memory. So it, it is the particular nature of, of memory T-cells or even memory B-cells as well. It, it, it is, it's how the, the the cells are, they have that particular characteristics. It's not like they, they recognize anything different or not. It's just that upon infection, you develop a large quantity of cells and then they further develop and differentiate into cells that have this kind of characteristics. Okay, I see. So is there a way to pre, I mean, I guess what you're saying is that there's probably a way to pre-arm someone's T cells and that would constitute one of the methods by which you can make a vaccine, you expose so, them to, uh, you know, to these these proteins that they will see if there's a certain kind of infection, and then when it happens, they respond faster. Uh, so that is essentially what a vaccination does. So in addition to generating an antibody response in an individual, where the antibodies could block and prevent viral infection. In vaccines that do induce a T-cell response, you are essentially, uh, in a way, artificially inducing this response without the 
uh, viral infection per se. So you are kind of bypassing viral infection and the potential of having a disease, but you are trying to still achieve the goal of having a memory immune response against whatever you're trying to vaccinate. Okay. So what's um, now returning to the original question, so you're trying to learn what the T-cell response looks like. What does that mean? Like, what, what are some things you would expect to see in someone that has a severe infection versus someone that has a mild infection? So, um, what we expect to see. So, it's kind of complicated, but okay. So, what you can potentially see, for example, uh, we collected samples from individuals that we know have a mild disease and in some individuals that we know have a severe disease. So one of the questions that we could ask is, like you said, what are the T-cell responses like in this individual upon infection and till the clearance of the infection itself? So one could actually see that maybe in an, individu in an individual with a severe infection, the T-cells present during the infection itself at the acute phase could be weaker, it could be uh, less in quantity, or it could be directed to specific viral proteins, while in those with a mild disease uh, could be stronger, or it could flip the other way around. And we could say that we could potentially also observe that in the ones with the severe disease, you have a very strong initial T-cell response, but those in a mild disease can have a very uh, weak T-cell response at the beginning. So clearly this could have very polarizing interpretations of what it could mean. Because if the ones with a severe disease have a very strong initial T-cell response during the acute phase where the disease is present, well, it is supporting the notion that the T-cells, the a hyperactivated T-cells is contributing to a disease. But if we see it the other way around, and now you see a very strong T-cell response in those with mild disease, but weak in the severe disease, then in that case, the interpretation is that the T-cells are more correlated to a form of protection. Hmm. So I guess if it's a weak response, not severe symptoms, and a strong response, strong symptoms, I don't know. Hmm. So there could be correlations either one way or another, you're saying? Yes. So at, at the moment, it's because everything is kind of unknown and new, we have to explore both possibilities and to, to try and understand what the data means coupled with what people are publishing and what people are revealing about the disease itself and see what it means. Okay. Well, once you figure out uh, the T-cell response of people with this particular disease, then what? What do you do with that information? How can you use it to help people? Okay, so once we know the T-cell response, there are, so what I just described is the quantity of the, or the magnitude of the T-cell response, the quantity of the T-cells. What could also be useful is the identity of the T-cells. So for example, whether the T-cells are recognizing the spike protein, whether the T-cells are recognizing more the nuclear protein, when do the T-cells uh, recognizing the spike protein appear? Do they appear later or immediately during the infection? So all these questions are important when you are thinking about issues like vaccination. Which protein should you vaccinate? So most people are going for the spike protein because they are thinking of a antibodies specific for spike to block an infection, which is correct, it's fine. And 
what do the T cells look like in this vaccination? So you can see the publications for uh, different the different vaccines, the different SARS-CoV-2 vaccines available right now. They all uh, look at the T cell response against the spike protein because that's what's being produced. But clearly, the information of what do spike-specific T cells do during the natural infection will be important in the context even for vaccination. Why wouldn't they look... Yeah, that that kind of clouds things for me, I guess. So if they're not going after the virions, but they're going after infected cells that are expressing things on their membrane, how do you know that the spike protein is the best thing to target if it's expressed on the membrane or parts of it? Uh, Precisely, I mean, that's a fantastic question. So what... In, in the context of antibodies, I think it's clear for you and for m- many individuals that if you want to prevent infection, you generate antibodies that are against the molecules necessary for the virus to infect. So in this case, the spike protein. So it's clear. For the T-cells, it's less clear because you can target everything of the, the virus itself. You can target the spike, you can target the nuclear protein. What is then important for T-cells? And I guess that's the million-dollar question. What what is important, but for the vaccination, because you are vaccinated, you are introducing the protein against the spike. So of course you are measuring the spike-specific T cells that are generated in these individuals who have been vaccinated. But in a natural infection, which uh, antigens are more important to be recognized by T cells? I think that's another question that is not fully addressed as well. And don't forget that the this particular virus itself it's huge. So to, to, to be able to uh, analyze the T-cell responses against every single part of the virus and every single viral protein is a huge endeavor because the viral protein itself is 10,000 amino acids long and a T-cell recognizes uh, a small fragment that is on average 10 amino acids. Okay. So this gives rise to many, 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 many uh, potential fragments that are there. So the, the scientific effort to try and even uh, study the whole virus is huge. And that's also why at the beginning, uh, a, a lot of effort has been placed on the spike protein because they want to correlate it with the antibody response that they're measuring. Then uh, there are then more groups that start to look at the structural proteins like the nuclear protein, the membrane, the envelope, so on and so forth. So then people start to expand uh, the potential proteins that they are analyzing. But clearly, I at the moment, I don't think there is, or maybe there are only a few groups out there that have extensively covered the entire proteome of the virus itself. So for other viruses for which we may have antivirals, what has been a more successful strategy? I mean, what do we learn from the past? Is it our combination therapies of, you know, neutralizing antibodies to prevent entry plus T cells, the best, just T cells, just neutralizing antibodies, you know, like? Well, uh, I think this is de- highly dependent on the, the virus in question. So take, for example, hepatitis C virus. It causes a persistent infection. Antivirals for hepatitis C the current antivirals that are available is extremely potent. It's a cure, and it can cure over 90% of individuals who have a chronic hep C infection. And it works very well. 
However, in its another hepatitis virus, which is hepatitis B virus, the ones that we've been working on, the current antivirals that are there, they are available, they merely suppress the viral replication. And if you stop the antivirals, the virus rebounds. So clearly, in one case, an antiviral alone works extremely well, and it could clear everything. And this is also related to the biology of the virus and so on and so forth. But for hepatitis B, for example, it doesn't. And in that case, a new strategy has to be developed, be it a combination of antivirals plus T-cells or antivirals plus T-cells plus antibodies inside. So I, I don't think there is a, a clear one-size-fit-all formula for all the viral diseases out there. So it, it's highly dependent on the biology itself of the virus, the immune pathology itself, and the life cycle of the virus and so on. Yeah, I'm sure viruses that, uh, you know, I mean, I know they say there's more about bacteriophages, but viruses that are more lytic that just, you know, are killers, um, <clears throat> there you'd want to prevent their spread. And I'm sure the T-cell component is very important. Maybe the entry is not so important. But viruses that are latent, like some of the hepatitis ones you can live for years and years and years with, um, they're probably not showing much on the cell membrane of infected cells. Otherwise, the immune system would clear them. So there, maybe it's more important to, uh, you know, to prevent them from entering cells in the first place. Well, it's even the, the idea that when you, when you say that there are some viruses that are latent and it could persist for years and years and years, and uh, the, they, they are not as visible to the immune system. Well, there are two ways. It's either the virus is latent, it's not doing, it's not replicating a lot, it just stays there, and it's not so visible to the immune system. And then you can ask, in that case, uh, is there an active disease? Is there no active disease? Do I really need, if I can achieve that state, do I really need to clear uh, the virus completely from the body or not? That's one. But in addition, so for example, in hepatitis B, well, it's not exactly that the infection itself and the virus itself is so latent that the immune system doesn't see it. What happens is that you induce a state of what you call T-cell exhaustion. So it's when you activate the immune system continuously for long periods of time to the point that the T-cells become dysfunctional. So meaning that the T-cells that are recognizing hepatitis B, it could be there, but they are no longer producing any cytokines, they are no longer killing, and they can even reach a point where these cells start to die. So then you reach a state where the, the person with the chronic infection of hepatitis B is devoid of T cells that are specific for hepatitis B. So you can see that you can either escape the immune system by just being very silent, or you could actually activate the immune system, but you continue to activate the immune system without clearing the uh, infection completely. And what happens is after long periods of time, you start to get an upper hand and the immune system starts to become dysfunctional. It happens in hepatitis B, it happens in uh, HIV, it happens in a lot of chronic infection, including uh, chronic infections uh, that uh, including infections of uh, mouse models, for example. Hmm. Okay. Right. It's complicated. 
the more we talk about it, the more complicated it gets, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it, I think that's also one of the things is that it's not straightforward because the entire immune system is a, a giant coordinated orchestra of things. So even when you see in the media where there's a lot of emphasis on antibodies and so on, well, it's not like the antibodies are acting alone against SARS-CoV-2. Neither is it the T cells that are acting alone. Uh, there, after we were after we published our work on the memory T cell response against SARS-CoV-1, how it lasts for 17 years or more, there have been a lot of uh, media coverage showing that well, the memory response is there. T cells are more important than antibodies. Well, we have rejected all such claims simply because we understand that it's not the job of only one arm of the immune system. The immune system is effective simply because it's a well-coordinated effort. It doesn't mean that one is going to just overrule the other. Well, then also the cell type affected, let's say it's heart cells, you know, preferentially, you probably wouldn't want a very strong T-cell response because if you kill a whole bunch of heart cells, and then, you know, fibroblasts take their place. Essentially, you've damaged the person's heart. So you probably want to prevent entry and not go after the cells and attack them as much, you know? Correct. Exactly. So it's, again, this is dependent on, on the tropism of the virus. So in, in which case, like, for example, in SARS-CoV-2, it affects particularly the respiratory tract. In the case of hepatitis B, it affects uh, infects primarily only the liver. It doesn't infect anything else. So it, it's also dependent on the immune response that could reach these places. So in the upper respiratory tract, uh, what does it mean for a virus like SARS-CoV-2 when you have a lot of antibodies uh, in the blood? Do, do these antibodies actually reach the, the upper respiratory tract areas that can prevent or protect an individual? Because it's generally... Uh, the idea is that in the mucosal surfaces, you have a particular isotype of antibodies like IgA rather than IgG. But if you do an intravenous uh, vaccination or intramuscular vaccination, you can generate uh, large quantities of uh, IgG antibodies. And does, what does this mean in terms of protection? So clearly, there, there is a general immune system concept. And then at every organ, and there is another kind of, let's call it a, a different landscape or slightly modified landscape of things, of the type of immune cells that are there and what kind of uh, functions that could be pertinent to infections of particular organs or particular anatomical sites. Okay. Well, very good, uh, Tan. I know I've kept you for a while. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Um, well... In the best way to find out, well, we, we have a laboratory uh, website. So uh, I'm from Duke NUS Medical School and from the laboratory of uh, Professor Antonio Bertoletti. So we have a lab website. We have a laboratory Twitter account. And uh, I think that's the, the, the extent of the social media exposure for the laboratory itself. And of course, uh, any search within the uh, journals, like a uh, journal databases like NCBI PubMed, the, this 
we'll definitely be able to find uh, information regarding our work on hepatitis B, as well as uh, our ongoing work with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Okay, well, very good. I know that you're over in Singapore, like you said, very early in the morning, but thank you so much for getting up and for doing this podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I hope I have made the concepts as clear as possible. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.